0: Today is more than just a position in an organization. It's also a mix of proven practices that produce results. Welcome to ADESIS Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak ADESIS. Our program will bring you the how and why of successfully led businesses or organizations with not for profit goals and how you can apply the ADESIS methodology and make it work for you. Now, here is Dr. Ishak ADESIS.
1: I'm here with our panel. Let me just start out by saying happy Global Oneness Day to everyone. And and if you would, put up both your hands. Let's start with the peace sign, which, uh, you know, is just our bodies are separate, right? So we've got two fingers out and then pull them together so that they come together as one because, as we know, we are all one essence. We are all one. So this is an easy way to take our message here from Global Oneness Day out into the public we invite you as you're walking out of your house with your neighbors, driving down the street in the Safeway parking lot, in shelters where you're going maybe with food and clothes, uh, to uh, use this little oneness hand signal that was created where we start with the peace symbol. Our our bodies are separate, but as we know, we are one essence. We are all one. It's a real easy way to carry our message out into the world, which is a key part of what Global Oneness Day is about. Well, I want to introduce this uh, this new uh, Panel. I'm really excited about it. This panel is called A New Bottom Line for Business. It is a new and exciting panel created this year for the first time. As we shift into a world living in oneness, businesses must play a critical role. Business has always been the economic engine and the vehicle for most jobs. It is critical, therefore, that we shift from capitalist models that we employ today to new models, conscious models, that focus on profit, but also on the health and well-being of all of life on Earth. If you'd like to hear about the challenges capitalism is confronting today and potential future conscious business models, you are in the right place. I have the pleasure of introducing you to our panel now. I'm going to introduce them one at a time, and then we're going to go right into questions. Dr. Icock Adizis. Dr. Adizis is the founder and the president of the Adizis Institute. He was ranked by Leadership Excellence as one of the top consulting organizations in the U.S. last year, and he's one of the leading management experts in the world. Dr. Adizes has published 14 books, including How to Manage in Times of Crisis. Welcome, Dr. Adizes.
2: Hello, hello, hello.
1: Great to have you with us. Glad to be here. Dr. Paul Ray. Paul Ray is the co-author of The Cultural Creatives, How 50 Million People Are Changing the World. He designed and analyzed the original research that identified the cultural creatives for 20 years. His his current research and writing focuses on the emerging planetary wisdom culture and the practical wisdom paradigm. Welcome, Paul. Hi there. (laughs) Then, Dr. Jim Garrison. Jim Garrison serves as the president of the Wisdom University, a graduate school providing master's and doctoral degrees in the wisdom traditions. Jim also serves as president of State of the World Forum, a San Francisco-based nonprofit institution created to establish global networks of leaders dedicated to creating a more sustainable global civilization. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. So I am I am so pleased to be here with this distinguished panel. I'm going to just uh, uh, bring the first question in to Dr. Adizis. Dr. Adesiyi, you wrote a blog called "Capitalism Is Dying Before Our Eyes." It says the current business focus on short-term profits is strangling our planet. Can you talk about this?
2: Right. I would really like to react to what you said. You said is that you're looking for a model where, in in addition to in addition to profit, there will be some other goals. And I object to the word "to the addition." We really should be talking about how to replace the goal of profit with another goal, not in addition to, but to replace. And this is why the model that the capitalism is based on is whereby organizations exist for the stockholders. I mean, that's how Friedman got his Nobel Prize. And the whole economic theory, which I'm a graduate of, is based on how do you maximize or optimize return on investment, how do you go to return on investment. Which is really a profit goal. At the same time, when there was a big crisis here with the credit and with the financial crisis, when they were interviewing people, what did they attribute the problem to? To greed. Everybody was oriented towards greed. And what is greed all about? Profit. And that's what we teach in MBA schools. That would be in schools of economics Aim for Profit. And if you do not produce profits in competitive environment in which we live, you lose your job as a, as a CEO. If somebody else makes better money, you're gone. And if your return on investment is not high enough and earnings per share are not high enough, owners switch from one stock to another in a bit of a heart. So what is this that we work for the owners? I would say the owners are not the clients. The owners are no more than stakeholders. We just have to give them enough return, so they do not invest their money somewhere else. But the goal is not to maximize that. So then the next question is: What do we focus on if it's not return, if it's not earnings per share? What does the organization aim for? The whole economic theory, the whole MBA schools, everything that we teach them is under week one big question mark. The idea that the management should focus on multiple clients, among them the stockholders does not hold water, because how do you handle a portfolio? How do you handle a portfolio of multiple goals? Very difficult, isn't it? So what should be the goal, and why is capitalism dying in front of our eyes? I believe it's dying because the world is far too complicated, and as it becomes complicated and as everybody is trying to maximize the profitability, what is happening? We are destroying the planet on which we live because what we are doing is called suboptimizing. As everybody aims to maximize their own goal, the totality gets suboptimized, and we are in a dance here. "Quote unquote, you cannot stop. Whoever stops gets killed, gets kicked out of the market because the investors are not going to give the money. They try to also maximize profitability. So what do we do? What do we do?" What's happening is that the government is taking over a lot. It's called government capitalism. Government is trying to regulate everything. That is not working either because they're suffocating the economy, suffocating entrepreneurial spirit. What I'm claiming is the hidden hand is weak, does not work. And when we have a strong hand, it doesn't work either. What the world needs now is a paradigm shift in thinking, a totally different way of thinking, different economic theory, different MBA schools. What should we maximize on? And I spent 44 years of my life working all over the world, 52 countries, companies from start up to the highest, biggest in the world, trying to find out how can we redirect our goals. And I'll tell you what the redirection of the goals are in my judgment. It's like in a personal... I took this analogy because I think it's easier to see it as an analogy. What is the goal as a human being? Healthy, to be ha- to be happy. Now try to articulate that. Well, then I have to be sure that I, I'm balancing my life and like by balancing my life I'll be happy. That's very difficult to do, isn't it? So what should be the goal? And this is what I think it is. To be healthy. Because when you are healthy, you can adapt, you can change, you can cope, you can deal with the present, and you can present yourself for the future. When you are sick, you cannot. So, what the goal of organizations should be, of management, is to keep the organization healthy. And profit then is a byproduct. It's like playing tennis. I should not be playing tennis watching the scoring board. Some people play that way. That's how CFOs manage companies. They only look at the bottom line. What's going to happen? What does Any trainer tells you when you play any sports, play the best you can. And what do you do? You train, you train, you try to be healthy, you try to be flexible, you try to be in control of the ball, you try to move the ball, and if you are healthy and if you play well, you will be profitable. So the profit has to be the byproduct, the result of, like happiness has to be the byproduct. If you focus only on happiness, you can become a hypochondriac, you can be quite miserable. It is by being healthy, physically, socially, emotionally, intellectually, you eventually turn out to be pro- happy. Same thing in a company. If a company is organized for mutual trust and respect, For a culture which is constructive and conscious, interdependency which recognizes our differences and we nourish those differences and we benefit from these differences and we have a commonality of interest, that's what they call mutual trust and respect. That is what a healthy organization is. The rest is a commentary. So we have to start measuring differently, measuring the culture of the organization because look which organizations are successful by looking at which countries are successful. What does Japan have? What does Switzerland have? They don't have any mines, no gasoline, no oil. They don't have any resources. And look, South Africa has everything. Where is South Africa? Why is it not successful? Because there is no culture of integration, of recognizing differences, benefiting from differences, nourishing differences, capitalizing on differences, working together. Like you just said, Steve, at the beginning of this presentation, keep your two fingers together. That's what I'm talking about. Unity in differences. Unity in differences, recognizing our interdependency, benefiting from the interdependency by recognizing our differences and not fighting our differences, but still having a common interest to benefit each other. By having that kind of a culture, the organization will be successful because it will be flexible. And it will be profitable as a byproduct, not as a goal. That's what I think.
1: Awesome. Let me just uh, come in real quick. Uh, We're going to go to uh, Paul Ray's research here in a second. But I want to share. There are some listeners that have just come into the program. I want to invite you to go to www.globalonenesssummit.com forward slash program. And on that page, you can do two things. One, you can listen to the audio links from the earlier programs here in the day uh, and also, you can leave comments. We want to invite you to leave your comments, your inspirations, your questions. during our closing program here a few hours from now, three or three or so hours from now, we're going to get to uh, a lot of your uh, inspirations. We're going to be reading from there. Um, paul, if if I could uh, bring you in, your research uh, uh, has a lot to say here, and I know you've identified industries that are particular problems in the uh, in the capitalist business models that we have today.
3: <laughs> well uh i like dr these's uh statement of the problem um the uh i there's there's two issues that that I wanted to talk about uh one well three now that you put it that way who who are the who are the people who are creating the biggest problems for the planet uh, who are the people who are maybe looking out for solutions among the uh, customers and other stakeholders who are not in the management and uh, what kinds of companies look like what we're what we're wanting to do and uh, so what i would what i would uh, start with is the agreement with dr Adiz is that uh, the f- finance sector is a big big problem because they have narrowed the set of concerns to very short time horizons as well as uh, as well as uh, money denominated uh, success measures and so that's a big problem but the second one is that we have uh, fossil fuels industries oil, coal, gas and even nuclear. You, if you think of uranium as an ex, uh, exhaustible product, it's in almost the same category as fossil fuels now. And uh, the fossil fuels industries are uh, threatening to kill off the planet. Uh, you know, We're sliding into a global warming crisis that is probably just about as severe as the one that almost put humanity into extinction 50,000 years ago. That Comes out as the basically the worst crisis in the in the history of humanity, and we face another one. So I, I want to emphasize that this is not just a matter of uh, equity, not just a matter of fairness. It's also a matter of survival. And uh, so the the issues that I'm I'm going to raise here are if we assume that uh, management's are going to have to have scoreboards. Uh, in order to deal with the financiers at least we could have scoreboards that are the triple bottom line where you have social factors economic factors and environmental factors all three that's been put as people profits planet uh, or people planet profits i forget the order in which it was in but uh, the the critical thing here is to say would that succeed and uh, if you had uh, a concern for uh people being fair business practices, beneficial business practices toward the labor and the community and the region in which you're doing business uh or toward the planet as a whole in this case uh uh, that's a that's a big serious issue uh, because there's a lot of businesses that feel free to ignore it or even want to externalize all their costs and create an enormous amount of damage in the process. The uh, the planet issue, of course, is sustainable environmental practices, and uh, I'm going to assume that uh, because of the history of business, uh, we're always going to have measures of profit. But once you start having a scoreboard that gives equal weight to people and planet, uh, then profit may take up a, a less of a dominating position. Uh, so the question is, would that succeed? And it'll, it certainly has succeeded in terms of the companies who've adopted ecological sustainability measures, because they're turning out to have much lower cost profiles, and many of them have customers. Who I described in my research on the people called the cultural creatives. Uh, the, uh, the that was a, a measure of, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, research that measured values, and uh, the values turned out to be terrific predictors to what people wanted from business and what they wanted in the way of products and services. And a whole industry association got formed out of my research called the LOHAS Industries, Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. Uh, and those include all the different kinds of green businesses, healthy lifestyles, alternative health care, organic food, and so on. And the cultural creatives are uh, people, however, who are w- are wider than just what they consume there in the developed countries about thirty five percent of the population plus or minus two percent all across western europe the united states and japan the numbers come out pretty well this similar and the thing for our conference viewpoint is Those cultural creatives, people creating a new culture uh, with different kinds of values, they are more similar to each other across the national boundaries than they are similar to people of their own nationality. That is, there is a planetary kind of consciousness emerging. And they're opinion leaders on environment. They're opinion leaders on uh, ecological sustainability and uh, global warming and like that, but also opinion leaders on uh, organic food and uh, alternative health care and so on. And the thing that we found in our research is that they were people who had been influenced by and usually participated in, on average, a half a dozen of the new social movements that have appeared uh, since the 1960s, whether it be the environmental movement, the women's movement, jobs and social justice, uh, planetary concerns, um, alternative health care, new kinds of spirituality, and so on and uh so one of the things that comes up is where they specialized in what they did. No, the average one cared about a half a dozen of twenty five different movements we identified so the uh the the thing that's crucial here is that they are loyal consumers, they have the best bullshit detectors in the world, and there are lots of companies that make good money. Uh, some of them very, very big companies like, uh, Unilever, uh, by appealing to cultural creatives. So, uh, now, the fact that they're opinion leaders leads to a very important empirical fact. Uh, the, Contrary to what you're hearing in the media in the United States, I'll I'll stay with that because that looks like the problem case if you read the media, uh, 70 to 80 percent of the population, depending on the way you do the measurement, want to see action on ecological sustainability and and global warming uh, by both big business and big government and they're perfectly clear that they haven't a clue as to how it's got to get done. It's way too technical for most people. But those people are in the, in the lead on it, and the politicians are not responding in the United States. What's really going on is big money has got such a role in American politics that it's suppressing action by the politicians because they look at it as a no-win proposition. Uh, but in fact... The numbers in the United States who are for action on this, uh, on a regional level, national level, continental level, planetary level, is has been in the seventy to eighty percent range since the very first study of that kind that I did in nineteen ninety nine. And uh, that that's true across Western Europe, it's true in Japan, and so uh, the, the crucial thing we found was that the opinion leaders on those concerns were the cultural creatives. They're the most articulate, the most active, and they brought with them a ton of experience from other different kinds of social movements. So the, the answer to the question of can you succeed at it, uh, yes, you can succeed at, at uh, triple bottom line and uh, the kind of concerns that Dr. Adiz has raised. Uh, and at the management level, you can succeed at it at the running the corporation level and at the marketing level. And in, in all those cases, uh, business starts taking on a larger perspective, a planetary perspective, and a, mo- a wider perspective in terms of the, diff- the range of things they actually pay attention to. And so that's the why a new kind of business management is, is emerging. And yes, there are people fighting against it, like finance and, and fossil fuels industries, but those aren't the only ones out there. Uh, so I think that there's an in- uh, maybe not an inevitable trend, but a very powerful trend toward improving things.
1: Wow. Wow. Uh, amazing. Well, we've certainly set the stage here, haven't we, in the comments that have already been shared. Thank you so much. Uh, Jim, you have a, a unique uh, perspective on all of this through the many different roles that you play. Uh, and, and I know you're going to come in later with some of the solution, uh, the solutions through business school programs, et cetera. But here at this uh, level of the problem, are there things you'd want to come in on?
4: Yes, um Uh, And first of all, thank you for convening us. This is a very interesting conversation, Steve. Uh, I think I would uh, demarcate myself from the notion that capitalism is dying. As I look at the world, I see capitalism unfettered and ruling supreme. Uh, If you think back 50 years, there was a divide between uh, socialism and capitalism with the collapse of the Soviet Union, with the transition of China into a capitalist formation, uh, and now in the United States over the last 20 years, the culmination of basically the deregulation of Wall Street, you see, at least I see worldwide, not a dying capitalist structure, but a capitalist structure that dominates the world economy with the possible exception of Cuba, maybe North Korea, maybe Bhutan, and that uh, money, financial interests, corporate interests now have very effectively subordinated even sovereign interests of national states, including the United States of America. It's clear that money rules in the United States. It has effectively bought out both political parties, and there's no real debate in the United States along um, uh, any um, even theoretical lines having to do with the supremacy of the free market um, economy. And so I would uh, want to make that as, a, as an initial point. Much truer to me is the fact that what's really about to happen is not that capitalism is dying, but that capitalism is about ready to be wiped out. Okay. And I would say that because I, I believe that what, we're seeing in the world is the escalating effects of global warming, climate change. We're seeing the escalation of extreme weather events. We're seeing extreme weather uh, even in the United States, but all over the world is now um, acting in a very destructive way. Uh, 300,000 people were killed Last year alone, and hundreds of billions of dollars of economic and property damage uh, done due to the floods, tornadoes, drought, fires, uh, and storms. Uh, records being set for heat and cold, and so I think that the, the the supreme paradox that we're seeing in the world today is that on one hand, the same. Fine, Financial capitalist interests that are exploiting the world and the planet and the resources in an unprecedented way are also at the level of uh, the political economy stripping down the capacity of communities to be resilient in the face of the escalating disasters that the policies have generated in the first place. In other words, right at the moment when the world needs to be able to have social services and a resilient uh, infrastructure to deal with the escalating climate change, um, whether it's in Greece or whether it's here in California where I am, the governments are literally being stripped down because of the so-called emergency financial management that the governing financial elites are insisting that the governments uh, put into place. So I think we have a very complicated situation, a situation that is is fraught for danger, and in my uh, uh, view, nothing less than the future of human civilization itself is really at stake when we're talking about the future of capitalism, and that we we need, I believe, uh, and thirdly and finally, to really uh, look at a radical. Uh, reformulation of capitalism, and put at its most abstract and conceptual, the primacy of capital has to be replaced, both theoretically and practically, with the primacy of the planet. I believe that all human institutions, if they're going to survive the coming cascade of crises, to borrow a term from uh, uh, Paul. Uh, we'll have to engage in systemic biomimicry. And what that means, I think, at a planetary level, both for the United States and virtually every country on Earth, is that we need in very short order to do what Lester Brown and myriad scientists and economists are begging our nation uh, states to do, and that is embark on a mobilization of our political economies to transition Clearly and irrevocably from a political economy based on fossil fuels to a political economy based on clean technology and uh, renewable energy, um, if we would do that if we would if the world governments ideally led by the United States would declare in the spirit of John Kennedy's commitment to get to the moon in ten years that within ten years um, we were going to be transitioning um, from fossil fuels to a global economy, and using as our new uh, matrix not capitalism at all but biomimicry, I believe the human race may have a possibility of uh, survival. Um, I think that if we do not, the mega trend is toward the decimation of civilization, and I think as Paul just indicated. While we're we're witnessing these huge megatrends of of um, of uh, monopoly capitalism and the creation of national security states and the stripping down of social services and and institutional resilience, we do have the LOHAS. We do have green co- companies. We do have multiple efforts worldwide in the face of these almost tsunami force wins to the contrary to re-quicken the human spirit. But uh, I think that unless there is a systemic realignment at the level of consciousness and leadership at the level of of the nation states and international institutions toward the reformation that we need, I think uh, there will be a situation of too little too late and the human civilization as we know it could well be forfeit
1: well it's interesting you know throughout the day today we've had this uh, this has been a recurring theme of course you know that uh, the way uh, urban laszlo uh, termed this during the new leadership session earlier today he he said we're at a moment of bifurcation you know that we're mm-hmm. we're at the end of the old story and the new story hasn't really you know it's just started to emerge uh, and then the scientists <laughs> were uh, were uh, you know talking about this. They said exactly the same thing, you all are saying. Lynn McTaggart, one of the uh, people on the panel, said that the petrochemical industry is all over her because she's recommending uh, natural medicines, and uh, she's just getting attacked all over. Uh, anyway, I-, I think that there are some what very common... To...
2: Steve, can I react to what... Yeah, yeah please, uh-huh. First of all, I want to agree with Jim, and I should really restate, it's not that it is dying, not capitalism is dying, I agree with him, it's becoming stronger and stronger all over the world, they're copying the United States, I'm now working very intensely in Russia, and I see what's happening, they're copying the United States with everything they can, I'm more capitalistic than we are. But what I should have said is, the capitalist model as a way of managing is dying in front of our eyes, because in other words, it's not functional anymore. It is destroying yeah. itself. So I, I, I have to change the title of my blog, maybe. So, But here's what I would like to say yeah. about what I heard so far. I believe that we might be barking at the wrong tree by talking that the consciousness has to change. It sounds to me very Don Quixotic. I think the problem, as I see it, and I taught at the business schools of Stanford and Columbia and UCLA and quite a few others, I think business schools are the swamps that breed the mosquitoes that carry the malaria.
3: <laughs> <laughs> what a marvelous metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one. All we are teaching those poor
2: kids is profit orientation, In, whether it's a marketing course, whether it's finance course, you name it. It's all direction by measurement of profit. Now true can say profit in the long run, but we don't know what the long run really means, you know, and then we are falling into what is called the street lamp fallacy. We go look for the click for the key where the lamp is, not where it has fallen. And 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 that's what everybody says. That's what can be measured. That's how I get my stock options. That's how I get my bonus. That's how I get my promotion. Is by how being measured. And what is really the measurement? All the others is talk. When they talk about social responsibilities and companies that I consult to, it means giving a donation to the opera house and doing some little donation here and there. You know what? It's fig leaf. Because the real measurement is profit. Unless we change the business schools. If I could prohibit business schools from teaching what they're teaching, it would be a good beginning. (laughs) It is the school of economics and the schools of business that are destroying our planet. Because we are training the future leaders with a certain orientation. And if we want to change the paradigm, we have to change how we teach them. Number one. Number two. You also
3: have to get rid of the accounting firms, don't you?
2: Well, no. They have to develop a different way of measurement. I really think that we should start measuring social, social, activ- social, what social indicators. We don't measure social indicators. We should promote by social indicators, and not on, not by profit. Profit should be a limit. It should be a limiting factor. It should be a constraint goal that you don't want to violate, other than that administrative goal you want to maximize. And what I see, and I agree with Jim, what we see there. Flourishing with capitalism around the world. I see what's happening with the business schools around the world. Go to India, drive along the along India, you will see every two ten kilometers another MBA school, MBA, MBA. They are all what they call it franchises of American business schools. We are spreading our our message. I really like mosquitoes. I really like mosquitoes. It's a disaster. I see what's happening in Russia. It's a disaster. And I have 14 honorary doctors to prove that they are spreading it all over the place. Number one. Number two is I think the business schools we are not teaching them to be a profession. What is it being taught at a profession at a medical school? The starting point is don't do no harm. If I can teach at the business school, the future leaders of this world, as I say, the first thing is the Heraclitus. <laughs> off. do no harm but I don't think that our business leaders that we are training today have that as their motto and the biggest culprit here is Harvard Harvard MBAs are the worst they're all ending up in consulting firms ending up in investment banking and they're the ones that are really driving the whole bloody thing we need here, to here. start teaching do no harm do no harm that is where the beginning should be one uh, um, next
1: okay look uh, this is good we're we're now kind of uh, pointing in the directions of okay what are, what are the actions we take how do we how do we move forward and of course, already we've talked a little bit about the three p model, which is the the planet profit and and people incidentally, I just want to mention i uh, you know in chatting with uh, Paul, uh, I had mentioned this fourth p presence, and uh, i Last week, attended this Awakened World Conference in, uh, in Rome and Italy that, uh, the Association for Global Do Thought put on. And Ronaldo Bratocco was there, who's the president and CEO of the World Business Academy. And, and interestingly, he's using that very same fourth P. You know, we've never met before, never talked before. Uh, but the fourth P, is fourth P. P. of the P. presence, P. which is the fourth P is presence. And it's, it's what Global Oneness Day is about. It's, it's saying that, uh, if spirit is manifested in all of life, that that is the game changing thing uh, that's what causes us to uh, as we know uh... you know once we walk through that door and we see spirit manifested in each person and all of life uh... then that becomes the paramount thing that we focus on and of course my background is business too Business is, is not bad at all and profits aren't bad you know business is good and profits are good provided that uh, they're nurturing the the world around us and of course as we know that's where the problem is today so what are things that we can do now
3: to uh, move forward in the face of the uh, adversity that you've all talked about?
2: Who's well, talking? In, a,
3: in effect, the stakeholder model is uh, something that needs to be implemented probably under law. Uh, In the United States, we have a very vicious uh, system which says that companies can be sued if they don't maximize profits. Uh, And so that becomes uh, an excuse but also a watchword uh, for uh, people to run the businesses on on that basis. I sit on a board of directors of of a very socially responsible green company, but they're aware that uh, they, can, they can be sued by major stockholders uh, for not doing things that take care of uh, the, the, the stockholders. And uh, that's, that's a, a, a nasty problem. So part of the issue here is how old bad ideas are frozen into law and frozen into regulatory environments, and they tend to benefit the class of of, uh, very rich stockholders. And, uh, you know, the 1% movement even fails to state the whole case. We're talking about the one-tenth or one-hundredth of 1% uh, rather than uh, 1% population. So, you know, we're recreating a, a feudal aristocracy when we're trying to make a new system. Uh, where I find Urban Laszlo's discussion really interesting is that we're, you know, <laughs> There's there's a phrase we used in the Cultural Creatives. I think I borrowed it from Gene Houston, talking about going into the time of the between. And the uh, uh, way I use Irvin's model is to say, we're entering into a moment in history when we're having a cascade of crises going on, where one crisis triggers another, triggers another, triggers another. And uh, that's going to lead to a driving down of the uh, effectiveness and the institutional stability of the system. And you can say that's maybe not a bad thing because that weakens the hold, the grip, on uh, on so- on social change that uh, the uh, finance system has, uh, but uh, it has the possibility of rebounding to a new higher level of integration, and uh, that rebound is what we want to look for and so part of the issue is not to assume that we're going to continue the current pattern part of the issue ought to be to say we're going to have a falling apart and a coming back together on a new basis and that's the most likely scenario uh, of the dynamics of our time and the, the the falling apart that Dr. Adiz is talking about is very real but it's a systems problem not a problem of finance right. or a problem right. of indicators right. uh... It, it's a systemic instability right. issue
2: right. Right. I, I would like to join here because of the, what I believe the system the what will I call it the the most foundations of the system that have to change I'm going to say something that will sound sacrilegious, especially in America. When we talk that the capital model, the capital model is dying in front of our eyes. It's not functional. It's not It's not systemically attractive. What is the heart of the capitalist system of the capital markets? What is the heart of the capital markets? The
3: stock market. Speculation.
2: <laughs> and because of that stock market to go to the stock market, because ownership is through the stock market and the belief that the economies go back gave us, and because you know they don't look at the real world they look at how it should be, is that we as the stockholders to the stock market and through the board of directors control how the company behaves, which is a lot of BS. I know how companies behave because I sit on board of directors. The board of directors are manipulated by and large by management. And if you think that they're representing the stockholders, it's only through the financial statement. So everything because of that has to be geared towards profits profits and earnings per share. The stock market is where the whole problem starts because it bifurcates between ownership and management, de facto, not the euro, de facto. I would really replace it with a bond market. I would say then what really what we need to do is for people to own the companies that they manage and to be managed owned. Because then you see, if, you, if, the owner, if the CEOs of the banks really own the banks, really own the banks, they would not get into the trouble they got into. Because they will be losing. But because they're to the stock market, they can get away with murder. We need to reintegrate, reintegrate ownership with management, which is really not happening in reality. It's what's called the public market. What's called with the capital markets, and until we reintegrate, it's not going to happen.
1: How do we How do we do that? Uh, it's yeah, to right, create the I, I tell you, how it's going to happen. I,
2: I believe. Look, you beat, you try to change a piece of steel when it's very hot. I don't think it's hot enough. I think we need a bigger crisis than we had so far, and I'm expecting <laughs> the next crisis. By the way, what, what James said, you know, there is a succession of crises, absolutely, absolutely, this, all these crises is a manifestation that the system is very sick. It's only question what the next one and the next one. And by the way, whoever is an expert in the United States on the 6th of November is going to face a bigger problem than the previous one. And the one in 2016 is going to have even a bigger problem than the one of 2012. Because the systemic system is not working. It's manifested in kind of a moving from one crisis to the other. And the word crisis in all antique languages means a time for a major change. That's what crisis means. The word crisis means time for major change. We need, if you want to have a major change, you need to have a major crisis. Our crisis is not big enough to change our values. Our value system is messed up. We have a beginning of it, you know. Occupy Wall Street and the hippie movement and the young people and the green movement. It's all beautiful in the right direction. But you know what? It's insufficient. It's really a drop in the ocean. It's insufficient and it's very slow and it will be too late. Too, too late. So what we need, and I'm praying for it, for a bigger crisis that will make everybody say, oh my God, it's not working we better change our value system. We have to re, reinvent how we manage. And I believe that the solution is called well, industrial democracy, which means really reintegrating workers and their companies, making workers being partially owners of their company, if not the major owners of the companies, employees of the company, on the companies in which they work. And you will see a major change in behavior.
3: I agree. I agree. That's, that's uh, a big critical thing. So one thing we could say is we need a delegitimating crisis. We don't need just a crisis where things fall apart uh, or, or people die or you know you have major plagues and famines and and worldwide death rates skyrocketing. What we need is a, the kind of crisis that has to you wake have up people. Oh, uh, yes, a, a wake-up kind of crisis. And for that, we need to have prepared ahead of time a set of interpretations that anticipates that such a crisis will come, and here's what it means, folks, so you don't get uh, it's an end-of-the-world kind of thing and waiting for the last days and right, other right, s- right, superstitions. Right. By
2: bulls- the way, I have a solution what we need to do, but they're not stupid enough to present it early because that's what they do to all, you know, put them on the cross and nail, they nail you to the cross when you're too early. So you're just
4: waiting for the crisis before we even come out. <laughs> yes,
3: exactly right.
4: I'd like to so, just jump in and, and make uh, uh, two points. Uh, one is that <clears throat> I think we need to be careful about waiting for the next crisis because I think that what we're going to get is the hammer grip of the national security state. And I think um, that may be, if you've read um, Naomi Klein's uh, book, The Shock Doctrine, um, not, uh, the next crisis may not turn out to be a delegitimating crisis. Uh, it, may, it certainly will delegitimate the system. But what the elites will do is not radically transform the system, but consolidate the national con- cons- uh, security states that are I mean, that are yeah. already uh, in you're place. Right. you uh, yeah. you're right. You're, right. you're working to a new feudal state. Yeah, yeah feudal. and I think we just need to bear that in mind. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Paul and I, for example, you know, and many people have been tracking the uh, development of the national security state here in the United States with the uh, National Defense Authorization Act that was passed almost surreptitiously last December by the Congress and President uh, Obama, um, the introduction of drones uh, here in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, etc. So I, I, I agree that we need some mechanism for delegitimation but I think that the governments are already planning for the next crisis, and what we're going to see is potentially concentration camps and uh the detainment of, of massive numbers of Americans and indeed even Europeans because okay. the okay. Uh, the okay. grip is is worldwide. The second okay. point that i would I would make is coming back to the more of the solution um uh as, uh level. That you were uh, wanting us to discuss, uh, Steve, is that um, you know Paul and I have actually been in in the process of doing something that is that is rather new in the United States, and that is um, uh, participating in the development of a benefit corporation because of the pressure on um, the both the corporations and the governments of the classic corporations that insist by law on the maximization of profit at all costs, including, obviously, planet and people. Um, There have been a number of people who are conscious but also want to become business executives. So over the last several years, there's risen up in the United States and now is beginning to move uh, more broadly worldwide the notion of benefit corporations. And in fact, here in California... Uh, they were just uh, brought institutionally into law just this past January at the beginning of 2012. And that enables a company, a classic C-Corp, to embed in their founding bylaws and institutional structure the triple bottom line and to begin to shift the preponderance of power um, uh, into from shareholders who insist on the quarterly returns to a board that that evaluates and makes judgments a, around company profit in relationship to other social justice considerations or environmental um, considerations. So Wisdom University, for example, which has been moving. Uh, uh, you know, trundling along as a little nonprofit graduate school, we are the first um, uh, academic institution, certainly in California, uh, possibly in the entire United States, that has transitioned from a nonprofit into a benefit corporation. And um, I can tell you that the attorney general's office that had to pass this, the various accounting firms. Um, and even legal firms that were part of this transition were were seriously challenged at how you evaluate the goods and services of a nonprofit in economic categories. It's one thing to evaluate a company in terms of how many widgets it's going to produce or how much money it's in the bank, but when you start to bring people and planet into the equation of valuing a company um, I think that's one of the uh, frontiers in this next phase. Is 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 as the benefit corporation begins to rise in ascendancy, um, I think our 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 uh, mentalities are going to be shifting uh, proportionally, uh, which leads me, Steve, just to a quick additional point, and that is that I would add, in addition to profit planet, people, and presence. I would add something having to do with the global commons. And I, I think that, that the, the competitiveness and the greed-based economic mentality and structure of capitalism really brought into the mentality of the West the notion of private property. And I think Rousseau was essentially correct in *The Social Contract*, uh, written at the end of the 18th century, um, when he said that if there was an original sin in um, in uh, European history, it was the notion of private property. And um, I, while I don't fully agree with that, I think that we should also just note the no, the the inclusion of property rights and this notion that we in the west particularly developed over and against the indigenous peoples that we conquered over the last centuries we we brought in this notion a very peculiar notion that human beings have the right to carve up the earth possess it as a private domain protect it with armies and legitimate our possession of small pieces of earth, um, by law. And, uh, so I just wanted to bring that notion in that one of the most exciting areas that I think are, is worth pursuing is the whole area of the rights of nature. Um, that, that nature has rights that we humans may not have the final say in reality. And therefore, the indigenous notion of, of 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 the global commons, of of common um, uh, law, and common uh, uh, property, uh, may be also uh, a necessary ingredient to this renaissance of the human spirit that we so desperately need.
1: So, interestingly, I'll, I'll just say something real quick, and then invite. Uh, we've got about eight more minutes, so. Uh, uh, but I wanted to just share this morning we were talking about uh, the global commons. It was something discussed at this Awakened World Conference in Italy. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was just pointed out where, where we've got personhood of corporations around. You know, it seems like it's time that we talk about how we protect nature. Um, there there are all of these progressive models here. Uh, this uh, You know, I didn't know that your own organization was becoming a benefit corporation, Jim. Uh, there's a... Yep. Uh, There's also these B-Lab certified corporations, and and even Whole Foods calls itself a conscious uh, capitalist company now. How it has uh, actually re-engineered its business, I don't know. Uh, Then there are these uh, other 3P and 4P, or really 3P kinds of companies, and they're the social or cause-driven businesses that uh, Muhammad Yunus advocates. Um, So let me just, though, uh, give some time to... uh, uh, to Paul and Dr. Adizis to share. We've got about seven minutes left, and we want to allow Amanda to, to share. I
2: one minute to react to what I heard and really like this conversation very, very very much. I look, being a management consultant and in charge of organizational transformation and changing organizations, I look at organizations as if they are motorboats. If the left engine is very strong and the right engine is very weak, you can sit on the, on the, what's called, on the top of the boat and shout left, 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 but it's, sorry, right, 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 right. The boat is going to go left. Why? Because the positions of the engines are such. If you want to change the direction that the boat takes, you have to change the relative powers of the engines. I look at the world that the business institutions are extremely strong. They have been honed and developed over hundreds of years. They have the schools for leadership, they have capital markets, they have strategic alliances, they have theories, they have measurements, they have roadmaps. Extremely strong institutions. The institutions that are green and willing to change the world and socially conscious Four P's, whatever you want to call them, they're scattered, they're disorganized, they're not united, and they're fighting with little sorbors against an enormous machine. The way to solve the problem, in my judgment, is to strengthen the engine that's weak and weaken the engine that's strong. Otherwise, they are not going to change direction. And I've been crying and shouting and begging. If you really look at how many non for profit organizations, NGOs, those that are really social cultures exist around the world and how many members they have, we probably have a billion people around. But they're not united. Business world is united. They are definitely united. They look at strategic alliances, they have everything organized. It's a very well honed machine. Which is not true for those that are well winning, well meaning. And because of that, I think What's going to emerge, Whoever was saying here about the National State Security Organization, that's what's going to happen. We are going to be crying, talking about it, but when the time comes of the crisis, institutions that are strong and existent are going to take over. Like it's happening with Arab, Arab Spring, it's becoming an Arab Winter. Why? Because the organizations that are organized are taking over and walking into the empty space. What we need to do urgently, Stephen, you're really there at the front of this, we need to get organized, all these organizations under umbrella, and get united and develop a plan of action that we all support, rather than each one fighting for some little piece of the environment. These are trying to save the whales, those guys are trying to save the dolphins, and these guys are trying to save the birds. We need to save the planet together, and that's what's missing here. That engine is weak, and we are going to lose the ball. In my judgment, we are going to lose the world, regardless of our good intentions.
3: We need a general movement for change, in other words.
2: United, we need a forum, we need a structure. We need, you see, nobody represents the planet. United Nations does not represent the planet. It's a unification, not unification. It's a forum where individual states are fighting for their individual rights. There is no forum, there is no United Planet Forum. Somebody that says, and you know, these are the NGOs, because if you look at the NGOs that cross nations, they, do, they ignore, they don't, they don't pay attention to national boundaries. We need to unite the NGOs. We need a forum where NGOs come together. If we could get all these NGOs together, we will we'll have billions of people behind it. We can change the world, but that's what's missing. It's missing a structure which is united with a plan of action and discipline to follow.
1: Well, I, uh, I shared at the beginning, this was not a one-hour discussion. This was more of a four-hour discussion. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we've skimmed the earth. Four-year discussion. New. Four hours is not <laughs> enough. Four years. You know, that's right. Four years. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think we've got everybody's attention here, Thank you. thanks to you all. Uh, this was fabulous, just taking us down into the nature of the problem and then some of the solution alternatives and then what you're recommending really is the most uh as our best solution alternative. Can I ask you in the last three minutes, to uh, can each of you leave a a link, share a link where people can go to learn more about your work?
2: Who is is the first?
1: Uh, Please, go ahead, Dr. Adiz.
2: Uh, Well, I am pessimistic. And all I try to do is to develop models that when the time comes, maybe somebody will listen to what's called the third way. Everybody talks about the third way, but what is that third way? Nobody has articulated it enough. And I'm trying it, and I'm trying it with organizations around the world and trying to change organizations around by integrating them, by bringing workers into the decision-making, breaking boundaries between management and workers, breaking boundaries between clients and the organization. Integration is what I'm working on and developing tools and methodologies how to make it really happen in reality, profitably. That's what I'm doing, and worldwide, and lecturing, and consulting worldwide, and writing
1: books. Doctor Adizes, well, what link can, uh, what web address can people go to to learn more about your work?
2: And you look at www.adizes.com. You have my store there. I have 15 books. I have I know, 100 tapes, and I have, uh, and I lecture all over the world. But it's only on my website,
4: com.
1: Yes, and we're at
4: wisdomuniversity.org.
1: Can you share a web address quickly, Paul? Culturalcreatives.org. All right, and I want to thank you all so much, uh, Dr. Adizis, Dr. Paul Ray, Dr. Jim Garrison.
0: Thank you again for joining us this week for Adizis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adizis. Please tune in again next Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy your weekend and a successful week.